Good morning. My name is Josh, and my family and I have been attending WCC for the last year and a half. We moved here from one of our sister churches in Crossway Network from Tacoma, Washington. It's just been a joy to, to find our, our new church home here in Windsor, and we're grateful uh, for the love and care that you all provide to us. I'm really eager to open this passage in Luke with you this morning. Many of you know, as you've gotten to know me, I love ultra running. I love running really long distances, high up in the mountains, on difficult trails. And this August, I'm running the Leadville 100. It's a 100-mile race that starts and ends in Leadville, Colorado, nearly two miles above sea level. And last week, and I had the opportunity to attend what's called Trail Camp, a training event that takes place in Leadville, giving runners the opportunity to run the whole course, 50 miles, because it's an out and back over three days. Now, my running journey started on January 1st, 2020, as a means to get back in shape. I was in the military, and as I got out of the military, I went to seminary, and I got into ministry, and I really let my physical health take a, a back seat. And I wanted to, to lose some weight and get healthy again, be able to play with my boys, and so I started running. Since January 1st, 2020, I've run over 5,000 miles. And as I was at trail camp last weekend, running the route of the Leadville 100, massive climbs, high altitude, mountain passes, I had this dual sense of how far I've come, and yet, how much more work I need to put in over the next six or seven weeks if I'm going to be successful in that race. On one hand, it was obvious how far I've come. But on the other hand, that course and its conditions put a light on every inadequacy and how much immaturity I still have in my fitness. I wonder, have you ever felt keenly aware of how much growing and maturing you need to do before you're able to accomplish something? Maybe it's not in the physical realm for you. Maybe you've become aware of it in the spiritual realm. I wonder if you ever have these Romans 7 moments where like the Apostle Paul, you say with frustration, I still do the very things I don't want to do. And the very things I want to do, I can't muster up the strength to keep doing. Are you ever confronted with how much maturing, how much growth, how much sanctifying you still have to do in your spiritual life? In today's text, we're going to see that Jesus is committed to ushering in God's kingdom while the disciples are seeking to build their own mini kingdoms. And yet, God loves his disciples exactly where they are. He loves them even as they're trying to build their own kingdoms, but he loves them far too much to let them stay there. Said another way, we're going to see that in God's grace, if you're a follower of Jesus, he receives us, he loves us, and is patient with us right where we are, no matter what level of maturity and sanctification we are at. But because he cares deeply about our lives, because he cares deeply about our enjoyment of him and our glorification of him, because he wants us to pursue his kingdom and not our own, he won't let us stay in that place. He will continually develop, sanctify, and grow us more 
and more into redeemed image bearers of Jesus. And so through these four different episodes in the passage you just heard read, we're going to see that God loves his disciples too much to not let us grow in faith, understanding, humility, and unity. Through Jesus' interaction with his disciples, we're going to see that he loves us far too much to not let us continually, progressively grow in our faith, in our understanding, in our humility, and our unity as disciples. You know, I'm, I'm excited for us to, to be in this text today. There's, there's a ton going on here for us to learn and grow in our spiritual journey, but we also find ourselves in a really important place within the gospel of Luke. As you know, we've been walking through this gospel, noticing throughout our time the theme of Jesus being the upside-down kingdom bringer. So far over the last nine chapters, Luke has gone to painstaking lakes with, with great detail to show us who Jesus is, what his mission is, and to highlight the authority he has to accomplish that mission. This kingdom bringer is the one who's ushering in God's upside-down kingdom. This is the kingdom that undoes the curse and effect of sin. Every miracle, every, ex every exercising, every calming of nature points to the upside-downness of this kingdom. Where Jesus rules and reigns, the, the effects of sin are undone and they're reversed. Where Jesus is king, blind people see. Deaf people hear. Demons flee. The natural created order submits. Sin is forgiven. People are made whole. And as we'll see today, disciples continue to grow and progress in their faith, in their understanding, in their humility, and in their unity. And so for nine chapters, Jesus has been ministering throughout the Galilean countryside, making kingdom pronouncements accompanied by kingdom signs. But this morning marks the transition towards a new phase in Jesus' ministry. Right after our passage this morning, verse 51 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Starting in verse 51, Luke draws our attention to this new phase where Jesus begins his journey toward Jerusalem, where there will be far less kingdom pronouncements and signs and more kingdom teachings and warnings culminating in his trial and crucifixion. Last week, Jesus' Galilean ministry climaxed with the transfiguration it's this moment where God unequivocally and explicitly declares that Jesus was not only the upside-down kingdom bringer, but that he's the very son of God. And so as Luke's audience reads this gospel and they, they get to the climax of the transfiguration, they read this divine kingdom bringer was ushering in a new exodus through his death in Jerusalem, they could easily assume it's time. Everything's happened that needs to happen. They could read of the transfiguration and the declaration from the father to the disciples that this is indeed his son, that they should listen to him, and they think now is the time for this rescuer to give his life, to enact his kingdom, and to bring about world peace, right? After last week's sermon, it would be easy enough to think that Christ's work on earth, his, his ministry among the disciples is done. He could make a beeline to the cross, but these four parenthetical episodes before the next phase of Jesus' ministry demonstrate how much more they had to learn. 
how much further they needed to journey with Jesus before they were ready to receive the keys to the kingdom, before they were ready to be ambassadors acting on behalf of the king, before they were ready to preach the good news of this kingdom come. These four episodes are the trails or the disciples' trail camp. We see they've come a long way with Jesus. They're devoted to him. They love him. But we also see they're still trying to build their own kingdoms. They're still trying to, to, to think that, that the kingdom will, will come according to their agenda and not Jesus. They still have so much more to become. And if we're honest, we let the word work deeply in our hearts, I think we will see the same thing in ourselves. As followers of Jesus, though, though we love him, and though we want to honor him with our lives, every one of us has so much room to grow as kingdom citizens, don't we? And so I, I pray this morning that his word will, will work in our hearts, and we may know that he loves us exactly where we are. Wherever you are in your growth journey with Jesus this morning, he, he loves you. He receives you. He's pleased with you. But he also loves you too much to let you stay there. And he wants to see you continue to develop as kingdom citizens. And so let's jump into the text. Look down with me at verse 37. This is the first episode in which we see that God loves his disciples too much not to keep growing in faith. Verse 37, on the next day, when they'd come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Peter, James, and John were on this literal mountaintop experience with the transfigured Jesus. But it has to end at some point, right? As, as much as Peter wanted it to continue, right? If you remember last week, he, he wanted to build tents. He wanted to prolong the experience he was having. Jesus knew there was more to do. There was an exodus that needed to happen, and so they had to come down off that mountain, and what are they met with? They're met with the reality of why Jesus came as the kingdom bringer. This first episode is a, is a microcosm of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Think about this with me. Here's Jesus with Moses and Elijah on top of the mountain, away from the sinful depravity of man, communing in full glory. And then he descends down into the mess of human sin. And straight away, he's met by a father begging to have his son delivered from an evil spirit. Is this not a miniature picture of Jesus' life and ministry? He left the throne of heaven where he experienced perfect, glorious community within the Trinity, condescended to our level, entered the brokenness of humanity to undo the effects of sin. And so they come down from that mountaintop experience back to reality or at least the temporary reality of this broken world. And they're met with a problem. Our hearts are meant to go out to this father. He has one son, 
And this son is so overcome by an evil spirit, it produces epileptic type seizures and convulsions. You can hear the desperation, can't you? It says he begged the disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. And so now he's here begging the one who can. But as much as our hearts break for this father and son, as much as, as we see the authority of King Jesus on display again, rebuking this evil spirit, those aren't the pieces of this episode Luke wants us to zero in on. This episode is meant to, to see the importance of faith as we serve Jesus and his kingdom. How do we know that? Luke is assuming, Luke is wanting us to recognize that, that when we read of the father begging the disciples to cast out the demon, that our minds would go back to the beginning of chapter nine in verses one through six. These two episodes, chapters nine, one through six, chapter nine, 37 through 43, are meant to work as, as bookends to draw our attention to this idea. What happened in verses one through six of chapter nine? Remember, this is where Jesus called his 12 disciples. He calls them to himself. He gives them power and authority over what? All demons. And gives them power and authority to cure diseases. And they're sent out, and the word says they're successful, aren't they? So what's going on here at the foot of the mountain? Why are the disciples unable to cast out this demon all of a sudden? Had Jesus revoked his power? Had he taken back his authority? There's nothing in the word that would make us come to that conclusion, but Jesus does give us a clue as to what's going on here. Look at verse 41 again with me. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Jesus uses a common Old Testament description that God used to describe Israel when they were acting disobediently and ignoring his grace and provision in their lives. And this description is used most of Israel during the wilderness wandering of the Exodus. Right? As, as Israel is delivered from slavery in Egypt, as they miraculously pass through the Red Sea, as they eat miraculous manna from heaven, as they are led by miraculous pillars of fire and clouds of smoke, they grumble and they bemoan Yahweh, and they even say it would be better for us to go back to Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh than to be stuck out here with you. And so what happens? Yahweh calls them a faithless and twisted generation. And this is the same thing Jesus says. But who's he talking about? I definitely can't think he's saying this about the Father, right? He's come in faith. He came in faith first to the disciples. He's now showing up to Jesus in faith. And so I think, as do most commentators, that Jesus is saying this to the disciples. And, and it makes sense, doesn't it? Like Israel, they've been journeying with Jesus around the Galilean countryside, seeing miracle after miracle. Even being invited to partake in the process themselves. And now, Jesus is saying they're acting faithless unable to deliver this son from his spiritual bondage. But what does this faithlessness look like? Why does he call that out in them? We don't know exactly, but, but we can make some educated guesses based on the next three episodes, based on the context of this passage. Right Throughout this section, we see the disciples seeking to build the kingdom themselves. 
according to their own prideful understanding rather than trusting Jesus to usher it in himself. And so we can assume at least an aspect of this faithlessness was their attempt to take matters into their own hands and to act in their own pride and power. Mark's account of this same episode helps us understand this as well. After Jesus delivers the young boy, the disciples ask him why they couldn't cast out the demon. And Jesus says this, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So between Jesus calling them faithless and them not seeking to cast out the demon through prayer, we see this faithlessness looked like operating in their own power independent of Jesus. They were not walking by faithful dependence on the power and authority that Jesus gave them. And it makes me wonder how often you find yourself needing to grow in this type of faith. How often do you find yourself depending on your own power rather than living with the power of God inside you? Right? It, it, it's so common. As, as we progress in our Christian lives, as we get some momentum and habits around the spiritual disciplines or in our Christian service, to find ourselves operating on autopilot, getting by in our own strength rather than spiritual power that Jesus gives. Right? Maybe it's preparing to serve in children's church or reading the Bible in the morning. It might be as you get ready for your community group's gospel discussion, things you've done so many times that now you just do it on your own. You do it in your own strength, maybe even never praying about it. As Jesus is ushering in this upside-down kingdom, and he's inviting and equipping his disciples to help advance this mission on earth, he loves us too much not to grow in our faith. But he loves the disciples right where they are, doesn't he? He doesn't cast them away. He doesn't shun them or make them feel stupid. But he also loves them too much to not keep growing. He loves them too much to not let them live in their own strength. They, they have a mission. Church, you have a mission. And to be effective to live according to God's plan. He loves you too much to not be growing in your faith and dependence on him. And so, though the disciples failed, Jesus delivers the boy. And he gives him back to his father. And it says in verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. This is what happens when the kingdom presses into our existence people are astonished at the majesty of God. Despite the disciples trying to minister on their own, the kingdom advances regardless. The will and purpose of God does not ebb and flow based on the strength and ability of his followers. Nothing can thwart the plan of God, yet in his kindness, he desires to invite us into his mission and see us grow in our faith. So it says the crowds were astonished at the majesty of God. And then the second part of verse 43 says that while they were marveling at all Jesus was doing, he pulled his disciples aside and reminded them of something. Read with me in verse 44. Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. 
As a coach, I love this. This was a teaching moment Jesus couldn't pass up. He is aware of the power in this moment, and he's not going to let it pass by. And this is a reminder for, for you parents. Take advantage of these moments where, where something happens in your life, something happens in, the, in a moment with your kids. Take the time. Pause. Remind them of the gospel. Use these teaching moments. They're powerful. So crowds were marveling at everything Jesus was doing. Right? There's an emphasis on the external acts. It says what he was doing over and above the internal reality of who he was, and he was aware of this imbalance. So he pulls his disciples aside and says, remember, this thing is not going to play out like everyone thinks. It's as if Jesus is saying everyone is, is swept up in what they're seeing happen. They think I'm coming in power to overthrow earthly governments, to, to decimate, decimate human structures. They're, they're just waiting for the war horse. But, but remember, I've come to die. Listen, let these words sink into your ears, Jesus says. I will deliver myself into the hands of men because the seeds of this kingdom are being born on the back of sacrifice and atonement. And what's their response? They don't understand, do they? This is our second point. God loves his disciples too much to not let them grow in their understanding. They don't understand. Their thinking is like the crowds. Even though they've heard this before, right? Back in verse 21, Jesus makes his first declaration that he has to die. It hasn't sunk in. It's not <laughs> penetrated their hearts. They can't make sense of such an upside-down, radical, scandalous outcome. And as we saw before, we see a subtle way in which the disciples are wanting to build the kingdom according to their agenda, not Jesus. Though they don't understand, though the truth is being concealed from them, though they can't possibly perceive what Jesus means when he says he'll be handed over into the hands of men, it says they're afraid to ask what he means. Their pride keeps them from gaining wisdom. I don't know how many of you remember algebra class. Your teacher writes some crazy math equation on the whiteboard. And somehow, though it's a math class, there's more letters on the board than numbers. The teacher asks if everyone understands. And you're like, yeah, totally. Got it. But you didn't get it. Right? Your, your pride kept you from being the only one in the room raising your hand saying, I don't get it. And so you didn't grow in wisdom and knowledge that day. This is what was going on with the disciples. But before we fall into what C.S. Lewis describes as chronological snobbery, right? The, the practice of thinking we would be such better disciples than they were because we sit on this side of history. Further along chronologically than them, let's consider this. We only get it because we have the benefit of sitting on the right side of the crucifixion. 2,000 years of history between us and that event. So we read Jesus' statement here, and, and we get what he's saying, right? There's something to see how things play out that just automatically give us an advantage over the disciples. We can even look at it from last week's passage. Here's Moses and Elijah. They had no idea how God's plan of redemption was going to play out while they were on earth, even though they were major cogs in its wheel. But last week, as they sit in glory with Jesus, what happens? They get it. Right? They're the ones that announce his exodus is going to come through Jerusalem. So we might read this and act like Monday morning quarterbacks and say, oh, come on, guys, really? Again? How are you so dense? 
Get with it. But I want to suggest that even on this side of history, we have some growing to do in our understanding of the upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom. At least I do. I may understand in my head that Jesus had to die and that in the upside-downness of his kingdom, power comes through weakness, life comes from death, that the way up is down. Like, I get that up here, but functionally, on the street level of my life, when the rubber meets the road, I oftentimes don't understand it at all. I'm in the dark just as much as the disciples are, and I imagine if you're honest, you are too. How often do we find ourselves aligning with the powerful, with the put-together, with the attractive of this world? How often, like me, do you find yourself doing anything to not look weak, to not look marginalized, or to not look with it? Friends, for the first time in the history of our country, we find ourselves not on the winning team culturally. What I mean is for the first time since the late 1700s, it's a disadvantage to align with Team Jesus. In fact, some studies are showing that there's been a mass exodus from Christianity over the last five to 10 years, but most sociologists actually think it's just not as attractive or advantageous to align with Christianity. So the people flocking away from the faith were never really Christians. It just doesn't benefit them to align with Christianity anymore. And so we find ourselves in this place, not persecution by any means, but, but not really cool to call yourself a Christian. Not really any advantage, maybe even a disadvantage. And what are we doing? We are flocking to systems of power to try and make up for it. We're aligning ourselves with, with people and parties that think they can advance this thing by might, by power, and what we're actually doing functionally is saying, Jesus, I get it, you had to die. But now that you have, your kingdom will advance through power and might. We're saying that dying thing is for you, not for us. And in fact, I think we might even be saying if you were around today and you saw how bad it was here, I'm not sure you would have died. I think you would have gotten on your war horse and crushed the establishment. Here's the reality. Some of us might be saying, yeah, but wait till he comes again. Then he's coming on the war horse. And it's game on. Might's gonna be right when he comes back again. But the reality is when he comes again, it's still gonna be the radically upside down and different way than we could ever imagine. When Jesus comes again, he will establish his kingdom once and for all through the power of his word and testimony, not by worldly might. He is and always will be the slaughtered lamb. Think about this with me. What's the picture we get of Jesus coming back? In Revelation, it describes him, right? He's coming on a horse covered in blood with a sword in his mouth. And we read that and it's like, okay, now Jesus is the warrior. William Wallace is here. Let's do this. Brave heart, game on. Enemy God's in trouble. Now, 
And I wonder if we like this picture because we think it kind of gives us license to act a bit that way. But think about this picture with me. Jesus is covered in blood, but he hasn't fought anyone yet. So whose blood is it? It's his. And that sword in his mouth, it's his word. Right? The Bible over and over describes the word as a sword. So how is Jesus coming back to fully consummate his kingdom and deal with his enemies? Through the sacrificial blood of the lamb and the power of his testimony. And if the disciples were going to join Jesus on his mission and be kingdom ambassadors, they had to understand it. And eventually, praise God, they did, right? These are the guys that after the resurrection, it all came together and they wrote the New Testament we're reading this morning. They got it. I'm ashamed myself to admit how often I just don't get it. How many times I find myself jockeying for power, clamoring for the upper hand, being afraid to go low like Jesus did. Like the disciples, I need to grow in my understanding. But God loves me. He loves us exactly where we are, but he also loves us too much to stay there. So he tells us in his word, let these words sink into your ears. Church family, may we listen. May, may we understand the king of the universe has come in meekness to die to save a people for himself. And if you're here this morning and you don't follow Jesus, I would encourage you to consider the claims of this king. He has willfully and joyfully died and given his life to take away the penalty of sin and offer you an eternal life of joy and hope. And if we're going to be kingdom missionaries, we need to understand this. The kingdom is advanced through cross-shaped, sacrificial living and loving. Not worldly power, not aligning ourselves to the right people and programs, but by cross-shaped living, dying, and loving. That's how we're going to win a broken world. God loves his disciples too much to let them grow in faith, and understanding, and now we're going to see in humility, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. The last episode said the disciples didn't understand. This episode proves it. Jesus says, listen, I'm going to die. The way this thing works is the Son of God, the one who was just transfigured, who heals people, who you all marvel at, he's going to die. And the disciples are like, okay, cool. You know what, guys? I think I'm the greatest disciple there is. I just told you we should always try and fight against chronological snobbery, but every time I read this one, I'm like, really? But the reality is this is me. Like, this is me, and it's probably you too. An argument arises, who's the greatest? Jesus perceives it's happening, so he loves them, right? He loves them right in the middle of their pride. He doesn't blow them up. He doesn't tell them to get lost. He loves them, but he also loves them too much to stay prideful, so he gives them this beautiful lesson on upside-down kingdom humility. Verse 47, but Jesus, knowing the reason of their hearts, took a child, put him by his side, and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The Bible uses a number of different metaphors using children to make a point about faith, and we can't just apply them all the same way. Right? We have to consider the context of the passage. We have to co consider the context culturally of what's happening to really make sense of each metaphor 
that Jesus uses of children. And so the culture that Jesus was speaking to here did not share the sentimental loving attitude we have towards children. It was completely different. In fact, kids were a burden in this culture until they were of working age, which was 12, and could help contribute to the family. There's even writings of many rabbis that said kids were the lowest class of citizen until they turned 12 and could start reading and studying the Torah. So to better understand the metaphor being used here in our day and age, I think Jesus might not have used a child on his lap, but rather maybe the dirtiest, most downtrodden, homeless person he could find. He would have brought that person onto his knee and gathered the disciples around. Because what Jesus was saying when he brought that child to his lap was the lowest, least, and left out among you, the one who is furthest from the center of power, the one who's furthest from the center of influence and prestige, that person is great in my kingdom. And whoever receives that person, they receive me, and by which they receive the one who sent me. And so what Jesus is doing is he's giving us this horizontal object lesson of the last reality, right? If the kingdom is built on the vertical, sacrificial death of Jesus himself, the kingdom will advance it will grow, it will flourish horizontally as those that are the lowest are esteemed as great, as they're pursued, as they're invited in, as they're honored, as they have a place at the table. But here's what Jesus wasn't saying. Go ahead and seek greatness for yourself, but make sure you also invite the least of these in. And actually, as you do that, the greater you'll become, right? It, this wasn't a scorecard for greatness, like how many children, how many homeless people, how many outcasts you receive into the kingdom will determine your greatness. That's not what Jesus was doing. And so what was he saying? He was telling the disciples, rather than seeking your own status, rather than seeking your own position, rather than building your own kingdom, your job is to receive Jesus by receiving the least among you. In other words, greatness is not a metric that's used in the kingdom at all anymore. Right? He didn't say the lowest among you is the greatest, did he? He said the lowest is great. Jesus is removing any sense of comparison in the kingdom. Right? When we attach ourselves to a dying Messiah and recognize that the lowest, least, and left out are great, we see the trajectory for kingdom citizens is downward. And friends, this, this bristles against every shred of my being. And I imagine it might do the same thing for you, right? I'm continually finding myself using my spiritual resume, my gifts, the good things God has given me, the call he's put on my life to be noticed and to be elevated, right? The pride that Jesus is helping the disciples see and grow out of breeds comparison, and there's just no place for that in the kingdom. This type of thinking, this, this type of heart posture brings about two different things in God's people. First, it causes us to try and use the gifts, the positions, the experiences, the call on our lives to be noticed, to be elevated, to compare ourselves to others and say, we're pretty good. We might be the greatest. We could see ourselves having this argument. Right? We've all seen this. We've all experienced this. And it's so counter-kingdom. But the second thing this does in God's people is it causes us to think we're too good to do certain things for God. One of the most dangerous things we can say as kingdom people is I'm above that. 
We serve a crucified Savior, and yet we think in our pride that we're above stacking chairs or we're above serving in the nursery. I have a Master of Divinity. I don't do children's church. Whatever it might be, like whatever you think is, is too lowly to serve God's people, Jesus is saying that's pride that just is not compatible in this kingdom. God loves us too much to not let us grow in our faith, our understanding, our humility, and now we're going to see in our unity, right? Jesus wants us to grow out of, of this pride and this dangerous attitude of comparison. We see the disciples give us an example of it in our final episode. Look at verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who's not against you is for you. As I studied this week, I wish I could tell you I better understood what John heard that would cause him to answer this way. It's fascinating to me. And yet, what we see clearly is a lack of unity. We see a heart towards tribalism. And we see a desire for partiality among the disciples that Jesus says, is completely incompatible with kingdom life. He loves them, but too much not to grow in unity and away from tribalism. John says they saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they stopped him. By every indication, what the disciples saw this guy doing was genuine gospel ministry. This is not a case of the sons of Sceva, right? These superstitious Jewish high priests that were looking to invoke the name of Jesus to advance their own ministry that we read about in Acts 19. This is different than that. This is legitimate kingdom ministry. In fact, this was ministry that was being done that the disciples had just failed at doing. I wonder if that might be part of their disdain towards this guy. We don't know that, but Jesus was clear. All genuine gospel kingdom work is good work. Right? What's he say? Don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Essentially, Jesus is saying here, there's enough real enemies of the kingdom. Disciples don't need to go around with an attitude of tribalism, lacking unity, creating more enemies. And because this was an issue of association, not orthodoxy, there's a lot for us to learn here. Might be a different cultural context, but there's something here for us. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. The disciples were not upset because this guy was a heretic. He wasn't upset because he was doing anything counter-gospel or counter-Christianity. Why were they upset? Because he wasn't doing it with them. It wasn't a matter of orthodoxy. It was a matter of team affiliation. And Friends, this is affecting our witness and our culture today. We are so quick to cancel people and movements and denominations, not because they're unorthodox, but because we think they are not on our team. But here's the reality. There is one team, Team Jesus. Doesn't matter what church, doesn't matter what denomination, doesn't matter what network. If they love Jesus, we are on the same team. Now, I have deep theological convictions. Your pastors here at WCC have deep theological convictions. The, the network that we're a part of, Crossway, has deep theological convictions. You should have deep theological convictions. I urge you to have deep theological convictions. 
But just because you do have deep theological convictions does not mean someone who does not hold those same convictions is not orthodox. It does not mean that they're a heretic. It does not mean that they're a false teacher. And it grieves me today in the church to see how easily we use those words and throw them out against other brothers and sisters in Christ. There are certainly closed-hand issues that we hold to, that we recognize as the boundaries of the genuine Christian faith. But honestly, those are pretty simple and few. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the second member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who came to live, die, rise again, and ascend to save all who put their faith in him from their sin. Salvation cannot be earned, but is a free gift of God received by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. Honestly, much more beyond that starts getting into tertiary areas of theology that we might not fully agree on, but can still keep unity. So what Jesus was saying to the disciples was, if something happens within the kingdom of God that we would celebrate here at WCC, but it occurs out there in another tradition or denomination or something else, yet it's done through the gospel for the glory of Jesus, we ought to celebrate it. Doesn't matter where it happens. If we'd celebrate it here, we should celebrate it out there. The kingdom is much bigger than you and me and our tribe. And Jesus loves us too much not to grow in our unity as his people. Friends, I hope you've seen from this passage that God loves his disciples so much, exactly where they are even as they're trying to build their own kingdom. But he also loves them way too much to let them stay there, to, to keep living in their immaturities. But we have to ask at this moment, what's the solution? How does he intend to grow his disciples in those areas? How does God intend to grow us in faith, understanding, humility, and unity? Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't show the disciples their deficiencies, tell them to get better, and then leave them to figure it out, does he? No. And that's not the way he intends for us to grow either. In fact, what we see from Jesus is the complete opposite of that. As I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, this passage acts as a bit of a crux or a, or a fork in the road in Jesus' ministry, right? In the next verse, Luke points to Jesus moving towards Jerusalem. But here's the thing. Biblical scholars believe that the timing of the passage we read and studied this morning came about two years into Jesus' ministry with his disciples. So what does that mean? That means the heading towards Jerusalem phase of his ministry lasted for over a year. And what we're going to see as we continue to study Luke is that in this final year of Jesus' ministry, his time, his focus, his teaching, his imparting, his care, and his development of the disciples intensifies. They got more and better of his time the closer and closer he gets to Jerusalem. And so we should seek to do the same thing. 
as you become aware of a deficiency in your spiritual maturity, as you see a blind spot in your development, as, as God lovingly convicts you of lacking faith or understanding or humility or unity, press in, don't withdraw. Get closer to Jesus, not further. Spend more time in his word. Seek to surround yourself with other people in community that desire the same thing. To use biblical language, abide in him. Remain in him because his word promises that he will abide and remain in you. He will grow you. He will sanctify you. He will prune you. See, we grow in spiritual maturity. We, we become more like Jesus the closer we are to him. The more we love like he loves, the more we sacrifice like he sacrifices, the more cross-shape our lives look, the more Christ-like we will become. And so friends, you've got to know this morning, God loves you exactly where you are. Have no doubt about that. He is pleased with you. He sings over you, the Bible says. But he also loves you way too much to let you stay right where you are. And so I think we ought to pursue kingdom growth in the upside-down way of Jesus together. What do you say? Let me pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that, that by it we know you. We know ourselves. We know our propensity towards building our own kingdom, towards aligning ourselves with power, to towards moving away from death and sacrifice. We ask that you'd forgive us. We ask that you would grow in us a, a Christ-like humility, a, a Christ-like trajectory downward, knowing that in our weakness, you are made strong. And so would you help us believe that? We believe help our unbelief, and have your way with our hearts. May we, may we glorify you in the way that we live and love in a cross-shaped way. Thank you for your word this morning. Do great work by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.